But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Mm. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I hope you were standing. All right, we're going to jump right into it here. Um, one of the reasons I think this is one of my favorite passages in, in all the book of Acts is just because you can see how, how truly skilled Paul is um, in other people's cultures, like how he adapts his message to fit each culture. Um, and then this is what we call contextualization. He contextualizes or adapts um, everything he says and does as he enters the pinnacle of culture. And he does, it, he does it with clarity. He does it without compromising the truth of the gospel. And so I don't think it's a stretching thing to say that Athens is, is the cultural capital of the world. Like when, when you think of a society's culture, I mean, what do you think of when you're trying to think of like, like what is their culture? What's, what's the feel, the, the ethos of that society? And you can think of, of these great thinkers um, in thought and education like in Athens, you had Socrates, you had Plato, you had Aristotle, who called Athens home. And so, to this day, some of the greatest Western philosophers of, of all time, right there, and, and Christianity goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with them right here. You can think of the arts to define a culture. And so you had some of the best art in the world in Athens, right? You had the Parthenon. I think we have a picture of that. I don't know. Um, I mean, this is this amazing structure. Like, how did they build that? in their time but they created this beautiful structure that 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 it was just a work of art you can think of politics when you think of culture and this was the birthplace of democracy right this is the first city in the world to, to practice a democratic government you may think of entertainment or or sports uh, to define a culture and and in Athens, you had the world's largest stadiums for sports, and it was the site of the original Olympics. So, like, I mean, this is the epicenter of, of culture and high thinking. I mean, this is like going to New York City. I mean, or this is like going to Waco, Texas, right? <laughs> Maybe even East Waco, right? Like, this is the epicenter of, of culture. It's great, but not everything's great. Because in verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, now remember he went on without his, his missionary friends who were back in Berea, it says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It says that he's provoked. Provoked means to, to stimulate or to incite someone to, to feel something, especially by arousing anger. And so Paul was incited. He was provoked. He, was, he felt rage. And at what? That the idols in his city, that they were full of idols. Yes, it was the cultural center of the world. But it was, it was also very much a pluralistic society, 100% committed to pluralism. I mean, they had, they had hundreds of gods that they worshipped in this city. Hundreds. There's a saying in Athens that says it's easier to find a god than it is to find a man. I mean, and it grieves his spirit. 
These four points that I'm putting before you here today aren't just helpful ways for me to organize my thoughts. Um, I think these four points are four needed ways to rightly respond to a skeptical culture. Like, most times we just pick one of these ways as a way to, to respond to culture. Most of, it, well, most of us just want to pick one and, and stick with that. But I, I think this first point is the most needed. To, to be able to be provoked, not to provoke our culture, but to have our culture provoke us. We should be able to look at the world, to look at the brokenness and sin and be in tears. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? How long, O oh Lord, will you pass me by? I mean, we can be thinking about this in this coronavirus time. Like, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from this world? And it should, it should break our hearts. But also, how long, O oh Lord, will you allow these people to go on mocking you? We need to feel the lostness of our city. We need to, to ache with those who ache and mourn with those who mourn, but also mourn over those who don't know Jesus. Yeah. And so I ask you, do you actually mourn for Waco? Are you provoked by our idols here in the city? And idol isn't just this, this little gold figurine. I think we, we, want, we, want to, we want to simplify it, that people bow down to that little gold figurine. and We want to think it's so primitive. And there's no way we would do something as silly as that, but we do it all the time. Right? Like, if I want something and I hear someone says, hey, if you worship this God, you get it, I might be willing to worship this God. Right? Like, some of you became Christians this way. Your life will get better if you become a Christian. That's called the health, wealth, gospel. Usually it's the opposite that happens there. But even, even in a simpl simplified way, if someone says, hey, if you throw a penny into a fountain, you have good luck. How many of us have thrown a penny into a fountain? And how many of us, at least at first, thought maybe something will happen? <laughs> right? To not walk under a ladder, to do all some of these, these superstitious things. I mean, an idol is anything you worship, yes, but anything that you worship in place of God, something that, that might take his place. I mean, look at some of the gods that they worshiped here. It doesn't sound so far-fetched. I mean, they had, the, they had the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom and, and politics. And so if you wanted to be smart to have wisdom, you worshiped her. Okay, I'd like to be smart. I'd like to have wisdom. You know, you, they had Plutus, who was the god of prosperity and money. And so I think some of us have already worshiped that god, right? <laughs> like, that sounds normal. But if you wanted that, you had made sacrifice to that offerings. There was one kind of odd god that I found. There's Cloacina, um, who was the goddess of the sewer system. Hmm. So if you wanted things to go well, <laughs> if you wanted things to have no clogs, <laughs> you made a worship. You, you made it. You, you made an idol. You bowed down to it. You worshipped this idol, and things moved smoothly in your home. Um, so. <laughs> we call a plumber. They, they worship closing. Uh, now, we may not bow down to these fake gods, but we absolutely worship more than just our God. I mean, Tim Keller says it this way. If you want to get an, a sense of the idols in your city, look at the tallest building in your city. Okay. So we got the Alico building. How many actually know what that stands for? Any here? Not in our household, maybe some in your household. The Amicable Life Insurance Company. Do you know that? Amicable Life Insurance Company. And so it's a building that's just full of lawyers. I looked it up. It's full of lawyers and insurance companies. Okay. Uh, we also have McLean Stadium. Um, we all we understand that. If, if you walk out my front porch right here, um, I can see both buildings because they are so big. 
You can see you can see the Alco building. You can see McLean Stadium. And an idol is usually something good that 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 we make into an ultimate thing. So I'm not trying to say these things are, are bad, but they become ultimate. If these buildings are our Parthenon, what do we worship? We worship security, and we worship entertainment. That sounds about right for our culture. <laughs> we worship money, and we worship sports. And I think the sports one is, is easy to see. I mean, you go, to, you go on Saturday afternoons or Saturday evenings, and you just praise the team, right? Like, there is so much... It's easier to lift your hands at a stadium than it is in church. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> right? Like, it's easy to see. Or if, take it a day earlier. If you go on Friday nights in Texas, what's the one day you can't plan an event on in, in the fall? Friday night in Texas. Because of what? Friday night lights. Because sports are our gods. I mean, we have Christians skipping Sunday morning service to bring their kids to, to these club tournaments on Sundays. Uh-oh. This provokes me. I'm thinking, seriously? I mean, there's another structure that provokes me, though. It's the bridge right here in Waco. That bridge that should be a sign of our connectivity of our city is actually a sign of the two sides of Waco. It's a sign of the haves and the have-nots. I mean, it's, it's been this way for years because of practices like redlining and segregation. And so I think, brothers and sisters, this should break our hearts. If it doesn't break your heart, do we have love? Like, it, it has to break our hearts for it to be love. And so what breaks your heart? What provokes you? But let's connect before we challenge. And so I think it's easy when, when our hearts are broken that we instantly move to, to challenging something. But let's connect here. Paul goes into the marketplace. It's not like he's going into Starbucks or the mall. That's not what the marketplace is. He, he, it's not like he's going and just street, peach, street preaching. That would be annoying for Paul. Um, the marketplace is something our society actually doesn't have. But it's a place where you go to exchange ideas. In, in, in this world, where do you go to get your news? Where, where do you go to, to discuss business deals? Where, where do you go to, to talk about art and talk about political philosophies and philosophical trends? You went to the marketplace. Today we have Twitter, uh, <laughs> which doesn't seem as um, easy to have a good conversation, um, but they actually were able to say what they thought and not have someone yell at them. They, they were able to have discussions with each other. And so they had the marketplace. And so Paul goes there and he encounters the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And so Epicureans are basically these hedonists. They believe that there's no life beyond death, and so you just live it up. Like if there's no death, there's no life after death, then just enjoy this life. The chief end of man is to seek out pleasure and to be happy. And so the Stoics, um, that, that's the Epicureans, but the Stoics were, were pantheists, meaning they believed God was in everything. Right? And they're similar to today's Hindus. Um, don't bother trying to sell me this dream that life goes on. Uh, we, we, we are gods. We are, <laughs> but they believe that when you die, you die. Now, these groups here tell Paul in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> what does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> babbler is this derogatory term that they're, they're, they're insulting Paul with. It, it's, it's a bird that picks up seeds and spits them back out without digesting them. It, 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 it's a babbler with someone who rambled on about things that they didn't really understand themselves. They, they, they picked up something and they just, they just said it. And so they're, they're kind of a second-class mind, or an insult today might be they're a third-rate journalist. And it, he seems to be speaking of this foreign deity, talking about Jesus and about the resurrection. 
And so they said, you know what, let's bring him to the Areopagus. I don't know if it was like, hey, let's embarrass him or not. Um, but they bring him to the Areopagus, which in Latin means Mars Hill. I mean, the, the, it literally, literally is this giant hill, this giant rock. And they go to the Areopagus court, the highest court in, the, in Greece for civil, criminal, and religious matters. They go before there, this place where just like deep thinking happens. Let's, let's, let's get deep here. Let's talk about real matters. And Paul connects with them first. And in verse 22, it says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. <laughs> what an introduction, right? Like, <laughs> we cannot miss how huge that is. Like, Paul doesn't come in guns a-blazing. Y'all are the worst. <laughs> Y'all are just those people. Like, if he uses those people, you know he's not getting it, right? <laughs> right? He, he doesn't do that. Why? Because they would just shut him down. They wouldn't hear him. He would be just throwing darts at a rock and it would just fling off. Nothing would stick. Uh, John Stott talks about this in another way. He says, some pastors' sermons are like bridges to nowhere. That they, they, they're actually grounded in, in, in good theology and scriptural authority, but they go to nowhere, meaning they never land to where the culture actually is, right? And so they're never going to the actual side. They're actually addressing a real culture to where they can hear it, especially apply it to what they're going through. And so that's why I think a boring sermon isn't just like a miss by the pastor. I think it's wrong. Hopefully I didn't have one of those. <laughs> they're, they're missing how to connect to the hearer. Like I think many Christians just see the gospel as just this one-way bridge that we don't actually connect with your culture. We're just going to lob truth grenades over and say, this is true, hopefully you believe it. Well. Paul doesn't simply just dismiss their cultural aspirations. Rather, he both affirms and then later confronts it, but he connects with the culture first. And our, our criticism of the culture will have no power unless we affirm something in the culture first. Mm -hmm. Unless we affirm in some way their beliefs and the values of that culture. They need to know we actually see their value. I mean, this is similar to what John Perkins does with his asset-based community development. Now, he's going about developing communities, not necessarily evangelism here. But we can't just come in and critique a culture and say, let me fix it. I mean, one, that's terribly egotistical of you. But two, I think we're missing our greatest asset in the culture when we do that. Instead of saying, y'all love your idols, as he walks in, he affirms them and says, you're very religious. Which also could be a, uh, a meaning of saying you're very superstitious. But he says it in such a nice way, they don't get angry right away. <laughs> our culture is very religious too, right? We worship lots of things. We talked about that. We worship money, sex, power, comfort, security. But instead of saying that against our culture, we can say something like, we're very driven. <laughs> you're a very ambitious culture. See how that changes it there? Like we have a point of connectivity there. I mean... Can you make that point of connection? Like, can you find the commonality with the people you're talking to? Verse 23 says, Paul goes on, For as I passed along and observed the objects you worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so they were concerned they didn't have all their bases covered, right? They even had an altar to the unknown God or the just-in-case God is how I like to call it. I think a lot of us have the just-in-case God, right? Like, Paul says, that who you're looking for, 
I'm going to proclaim to you. We're not so different. We're both worshiping. Let me just fill you in on who you actually are worshiping with that unknown God. In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. He doesn't say, he's God and I'm going to prove he exists. He says, I'm going to prove you already know him. Yeah. And I think it's a very different way of approaching someone, that we, a very different way of the way we actually usually talk to unbelievers. Mm. He then later tells them about God by quoting some of their poets to him. Like, I mean, look at God showing off through Paul. <laughs> he takes a poem written about Zeus, who's like the king of fake gods, right? And he applies it to the real creator of heaven and earth. In verse 28, he says, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Mm. Y'all, I think this is wild. <laughs> the poem about Zeus that says this, this is the full poem here, a section of it. Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O oh men, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus, and all the marketplaces of human beings. The sea is full of him, and so are the harbors. In every way we have all to do with Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. <laughs> I mean, this passage is just incredible to show the, the incredible common grace that Paul has for them, that God has for them, that God doesn't just rip open the earth, swallow them whole, and have nothing more to do with this, this Greek culture. He says, there's some truth in what you wrote. Only you're actually worshiping fake gods. I mean, just incredible grace and patience he has for humanity. But if we just stop at our connecting points, I think we're going to miss it, though. We have to connect. But if we just stop there and connect with the culture, and that's it, then, then we miss it. I mean, equally wrong, some of us just want to always challenge the culture. I mean, so it, it kind of says, like, either we're, either we're obnoxious or we're cowardly. E either, either we have no compassion or we cower under the pressure. And so at some point, we have to challenge the culture with hospitality. Paul says, that God, Yahweh, Elohim, the real king of kings, the one who created the seas and skies, in verse 24, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I mean, look at the preeminence of the glory of that type of God. <laughs> I mean, it goes on in verse 26 that he made from one man every nation, which is this beautiful verse to talk about the commonality that, that God's created all of us from this one man, that we're all united. And what's the odd thing is the other part of that verse is the segregationist favorite verse to use. That got a lot of different periods and dwelling places for people to say that they need to be in this section, they need to be in this in, in this um, cultural state, and this, to have people over them, that they, they've been allotted to that. And yet, right before that, it talks about the commonality of humankind, of the Imago Dei. Right. That's just a side note here. <laughs> Paul is showing that, that, that their own beliefs fail based on their own premise. He's using their own philosophical logic against them. If God is real, how could that God that we just talked about, that has created all things and all mankind, ever dwell in a temple? This is what Francis Schaeffer calls blowing the roof off of deconstructing someone's world because they won't see what they need, uh, that they need a new worldview if they don't see that their own is, isn't working out. And so they need to see maybe my way of doing things isn't 
going to work. So when we encounter people on, on issues, when we encounter people on issues of social justice, like we, we encounter lots of people who, who love that we believe in social justice, but they disbelieve that there is even a God. And I want to ask, how can we have social justice if there is no God? If there is no ultimate right or wrong, then everything is just a matter of opinion. And therefore, there's actually no justice. It breaks down. But because there is a God, and there is a real judge who we can actually fight for real justice, and that there is real evil in the world that we're actually fighting for, and there's actually real beauty and truth in the world, like that's what we want to fight for. And so we need to be willing to challenge the culture, and that willingness comes, comes knowing full well that we will be rejected and that we will be laughed at. Yeah. Paul both connects and challenges the culture, and in the end, he gets mocked. Yes, uh, Dionysius, a member of the Council of the Areopagus, believes, and that's huge. And then Damaris, another foreign woman, believes as well. And don't you love that, that the Luke has been pointing out all of these women who believe? Yeah, we love Luke. But others, <laughs> others laugh at him and run him out. And I think many of us, this is our greatest fear. Mm. I think we cower under the pressure of our culture. Is the Bible really inerrant? Can we actually trust this book here? I mean, all of it? I mean, everything Paul says, he says some hard things. I mean, you're going to be seen as an idiot if you say yes. Like, you don't have a brain. Like, this is completely outdated. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. A stumbling block. It's, it's the scandal is that word there. It's the scandal of the gospel. It's scandalous. It is offensive. It's seemingly idiotic. Like, how dare we say our way of seeing the world is the only way? And that's the response you're going to get when you stand on the truth of Scripture. I think many want to say, we're all just trying to make sense of, of God, like a blind man coming to an elephant who's, who's just feeling his way through this world. I mean, you know, if a blind man comes to an elephant and he feels the leg of an elephant, this giant trunk of a leg, he might say, you know what, this is a tree. And, and, and another would, would come and they might feel the, 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 the nose of the elephant, the trunk of it, and say, I'm feeling a snake. Another might go to the ear and say, no, I'm feeling a fan. But we're all feeling the same thing. We're all trying to make sense of this one thing. And that's really like how we are with God. We're just trying to make sense of who this God is. We're all talking about the same thing. But what the problem with that is, is that you're assuming that you're an unbiased, unblind observer standing on the side that you can now see everything rightly. Mm. And that's incredibly egotistical. <laughs> the only reason we believe this to be true is because God's word has told us these things that are true. And the only reason we can trust that is because of the resurrection. A verifiable fact in history. Now that's when, when we have to turn our conversation from being provoked to connecting to challenging to lastly to proclaim. We have to proclaim something. We, we, we are terrified to proclaim this, aren't we? We're terrified to say something, to put something out there for people to judge. But we, we have comfort knowing that the same mocking that happens to Paul, that's going to happen to us, happens to Jesus. So that when others mocked him, they actually they made fun of him, calling him the king of kings jokingly. And they jokingly put a crown on him.
on him, but a crown of thorns that would, that would scrape down his skull so that the blood would tear as they were murdering him and killing him. And he took that. He took that rejection. He took that mocking. And he took that death for you. And that's what we proclaim. But that's not the end of our story. Oh, no. Right? It doesn't stop there. No, it doesn't. Paul is not about to proclaim just the death of Jesus. He's about to proclaim the, the resurrection of Jesus. He then tells them boldly in verse 30 to repent. And then tells them about a man. He doesn't actually get to say who that man is, but we know who that man is. He tells them about a man who has been, who he, he's appointed, and that this man has been raised from the dead. And that act of resurrection assures us that this God man is who he says he is. Come on. That we can trust this word. And that this God-man is who you've all been searching for. And that does it for the Athenians right there. They don't even let him finish his speech. That's when they halt the conversation. Just even the hint of the resurrection of the dead, they run him off. But this is everything for us. Like, we are Easter people. In these times of when we worry about life and death, I proclaim to you that we have a death eater. We have a grave killer. There is a death. But it's the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ. That he has killed death itself. And that there is a, there is a, is a death that we will feel, but it's momentary. And that the dead will rise again. Amen? Amen. I hope you're saying amen in your homes. <laughs> this culture is known for just looking for the latest thing in, in Athens. They're addicted to, to something new, addicted to the novelty of something different, to, to just feel alive or to stir their spirit. And Paul is saying, you've been running and you've been chasing after that which doesn't satisfy. And, I mean, a new show to binge on on Netflix is not going to satisfy your heart. A new app will not do it. Whatever's in your Amazon cart isn't going to do it. A new job, a new setting, a new family will not satisfy you. That which you've been looking for, that which you've been living for, we proclaim to you is Jesus. Jesus alone can comfort and challenge me and thrill me and console me, repent and believe in Jesus. In our day when fear seems to rule the air that we breathe, engage the skeptical world with confidence that they already know who we worship. And deep down, they want it to be true. If you're the skeptic, I know it sounds harsh, but repent. Believe in Jesus. I know it's terribly inconvenient. And you worry that it might change everything, but here's the good news. It will. Isn't that great news? When you know how empty you are, that it will change everything. Don't believe it just because you're going to get something. Don't believe it because it may change everything. Believe it because it's true. And when you do, it will change everything. And so be provoked at the pain and our suffering that we see in, this, in our culture. Con con connect with our culture. Challenge it and finally proclaim the true God to it, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on his throne. Let's pray.